Hans just wanted me to talk about the, the grace of God. I, I'm kind of out of touch with the hyper-grace movement that I hear is kind of running rampant. And uh, uh, I don't, I, so I don't know all the ins and outs of it. I, I, I haven't read all that stuff. And I, I don't even, you know, my, my sphere is pretty close to a small group of people. And, and none of us are have been ensnared by it, but I understand the background of it. It's the same accusation that was coming at Paul, the same perversion in, uh, in Romans 3, so I understand what's driving it. And, and so the, the problem behind the hyper-grace movement is a number of things. It, it lacks the fear of God, which the day of the Lord instills, or the judgment of God instills, whether you, you have it in a diluted, universalized form on death, or you have it full force, you know, the day of the Lord kind of deal. Um, so it lacks the fear of God. It also lacks an understanding of the grace of God and the administration of the grace of God, the terms of administration, right? And so uh, the grace of God throughout the scriptures is tied to, inherently tied to the mercy of God and salvation. And uh, and. And the, the basis of the, the mercy and grace of God in, in relation to the sin of man and the judgment to come is the sacrificial system. That, and he designed it. I mean, this is, this is just one of those things that we all kind of have to come to terms with, right? Like, the major revelation of God besides, besides the incarnation and cross is Mount Sinai. I guess the major, the descending onto a mountain with fire and trumpet and shaking and smoke, like it's all the imagery of the day of the Lord. And I imagine everybody involved was thinking this is that, right? But you have Sinai that happens. You, you know, you just put yourself in that scenario out in the wilderness, in the desert, and fire and shaking for like, you know, 40 days on end and these kinds of and what do you receive from Sinai? You receive the book of Leviticus. That's what you receive. <laughs> right? So, it, it, so it's kind of like, you know, we, if you're involved in the charismatic movement, you know, you receive some dramatic, end-time, detailed vision with numbers and angels, and you don't receive the book of Leviticus. <laughs> yeah, so, but anyway, but the, the, the point is, is the sacrificial system is the divinely ordained means that God chose. Like, why? He could have done anything when he descended on that mountain in the sea of crystal and like, why, why the book of Leviticus? Why set it up like this? I mean, it's like taking my kids out on this big camping trip. I haven't thought through this analogy. I don't know where it's going. And all of a sudden, like, we just build birdhouses for a week straight. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, why do that then? There, what? You know what I mean? So this is the point of coming to terms with this is how God has revealed himself. And this is what he's trying to say through it. And this then is how we interpret it, which the New Testament lays it out very clearly for us, how we interpret it and what it means. But we have to come to terms with the grace of God on the basis of what he's revealed 
which the foundation of which is in the sacrificial system. And if we understand the sacrificial system in light of the day of the Lord, there's no place for any kind of hyper-grace perversion. Do you, you understand where I'm going? So this is why we're going to work through it. So I just want to do a real dull survey. Okay, I want you to hang with me. Try to engage. Just do a real dull survey of, um, of the grace of God, Old and New Testament. Because you kind of have the grace of God that's tied in, in the word group of mercy in light of judgment and wrath. And then you have the grace of God tied to the word group of blessing. And, you know, he spoke gracious words to me. Grace and peace to you. The grace, grace of God was on us and these kinds of things. Make, you know, make us, Lord, whatever, number, number six. Lord, be gracious to you. Make us comments on space time on that kind of But the primary way that the grace of God in the New Testament is presented that we're dealing with is in relation to salvation and it's based upon the sacrificial system. So just read with me. Just so we kind of have a background for the grace of God as we start working through passages in the New Testament. Exodus 33, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so Paul quotes this in, in Romans 9, right? When he says, only he, he says it, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And so you actually get an interchange uh, you know, between his quoting of the Septuagint and the Masoretic. So, um, but you have an interchange between grace and, and mercy going on. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. 2 Kings 13, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. So again, the grace of God is in relation to mercy from judgment. Nehemiah 9, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders he performed among them. They were stiff-necked, appointed a leader, returned to their slavery in Egypt. But you, a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 27, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me. And this gets translated, this is a phrase that goes throughout the Psalms and also gets translated in, in different translations. Is, o Lord, have mercy on me and answer me. So be gracious, have mercy, the same kind of deal. <clears throat> turn, turn not your servant away in anger. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So you, you get a, a consistent rehearsal of the, of the revelation to Moses and, and uh, Exodus 34 throughout the Psalms and Prophets. Isaiah 30, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, blessing all to those who wait for him. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. Joel 2, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Again, the rehearsal. 
Amos 5, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of, just, of Joseph. So again, you have graciousness in relation to the threat of, of, uh, uh, of judgment. Jonah 4, O Lord, is it is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Zechariah 4, page 2, that's what the Lord of hosts says to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, a great mountain, before Zerubbabel, and you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. One who started the foundation will finish it, right? And so the whole, it's in the context of the temple and the sacrificial system by which you find the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins. So the shouting, it's the same as he, he will bring forth the capstone to the temple by shouts of mercy, mercy, O oh God, right? This is the, the idea that's being... Zechariah 12, and I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Right? So we'll, we'll, we'll tie this again more directly to the temple and the sacrificial system, but all of this, the grace and mercy of God, is repenting of your sins and casting yourself on God by, by the means he's appointed in the sacrifice. Malachi 1, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? So again, the context is in, uh, in relation to being merciful, to being a, a, an offended uh, king. New Testament, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as, as they will. And so again, salvation and the grace of God are tied together in mercy. Romans 4, the law brings wrath, but... Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only those of the law, but those outside. Romans 5. So here you get, I mean, just grace, the grace of God interpreted in the broad spectrum of redemptive history. From Adam to the day of the Lord and eternal life, you get the interpretation of the grace of God. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, grace is set in context to the mercy of God towards the transgression of man and why the judgment to come and inheriting of eternal life. 
Romans 11, on the basis of grace, Galatians 5, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified from the law, you have fallen away from grace. But through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved raised us up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, for it's the gift of God, that no man may boast in his presence, right? We have a real uh, clear anyway, uh, Titus 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared, he saved us not uh, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. So mercy and grace are based upon the reality of the sacrificial system. So the sacrificial system is fundamentally a sin-bearing system in which an animal bears the sin of the person offering it. This is a strange equation. I, I understand that it, uh, it's not sensible to the modern mind, right? Nobody's killing animals anywhere around us. Like it, it doesn't, there's no, it's like a lot of the language that's based on the sacrificial system. Like propitiation, it's not in our common language. It's not in the language on the street. It doesn't, have that much parallel to common life. So it's a little bit of a stretch to renew the mind and set ourselves back in context. And and just because modern man has detached itself and moved on from God, it doesn't mean that it's not actually how it is. Yeah. You, you understand? So, uh, so the Day of Atonement, you, you really get... Uh, uh, an articulating of the relationship between the sin of the worshiper and the animal that is that's assumed in the daily sacrifice because the daily sacrifice involves the same things but you don't get quite the same articulation of it in Leviticus 1 through 7 so Leviticus 16 when Aaron's finished making atonement for the most holy place the tent of meeting and the altar with the bull, he brings forward the live goat he's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. And the man shall release it in the desert. So you get a, you know, a very like demonstrated picture of how the animal is bearing the sin, the demonstration of the mercy of God in the situation. And again, it takes faith, right? Because you've sinned, you've repented, you confess over the animal, you walk away with the memories, just like it was before, right? It takes faith to believe God, that God accounts the animal on your behalf. You understand what I'm saying? 
And so it's not like there's, there's, it's just kind of a ritual going on that, oh, if I do this, then I'm good. No, like, it takes faith that this is how God reckons the whole encounter between me and this dying animal and the blood and all this. Leviticus 17, and it's understood, uh, it's understood that the animal is the provision of God, right? Because thunder and lightning on the mountain, you receive the book of Leviticus, and God sets it up this way. God's the one who ordains it, right? Like men didn't ordain it. Men didn't like sit around, there weren't these guys sitting around in the desert going, well, we got a problem with discipleship here, and people keep sinning and messing up, and then they're you know under condemnation, and then they just end up in rebellion, and this, that, and the other. Well, what should we do to clear, you know, like to deal with the sin and clear the conscience? And how do we like? Well, what should we do here, right? Oh, well, hey, let's do some animals. We'll do this substitutionary thing here, and and we'll just kind of like we'll indoctrinate them with this dogmatic thing that if you kill the animal in your place, then God's then happy with you. Right? Men didn't come up with this. This isn't, this is something God came up with. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get it either, so, but it is the way it is. So it's understood that... Can I speak into it a little bit? Yeah. If that's okay? Yeah. The David comment is uh, really interesting with the two goats, because uh, there's actually two goats. The first goat is uh, called God's goat, because they cast lots between the two goats. One goat is God's goat, and the other goat is man's goat. And what happens is that man's goat is sent into the wilderness. Wow. While God's goat is actually the one that receives the sacrifice. And it's supposed to remind them in the sense of Eden. Right? Because man really should have bore the guilt of the sin that they did. So what happens, man is expelled into the wilderness bearing their sin. While there was a, most likely an animal that was sacrificed. I was like God signed for them to cover. You know, they couldn't cover themselves, so they needed something to cover them. So God covers them by doing the sacrifice and giving them skins of, of animals. So what winds up happening is it's it's a constant reminder of Eden, like an expelling into the wilderness, and uh, the sacrifice of the one goat. But it was God's goat who was sacrificed. So then it becomes a sign of the Messiah that though we are allowed to live in the wilderness, right? We live in this wilderness sojourning in this age. There was a lamb who the great high priest laid his hand on and it became the sacrifice and that was God's goat, which was the Messiah. So we kind of, it all draws out over time in the sense of understanding of really what it was. It connects to the, the Passover lamb and everything else. That's sweet. Yeah. So, that's right <clears throat> so, uh, sweet. If that Leviticus. doesn't help, if that helps oh, yeah, that, get some awesome. understanding a little bit. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Leviticus 17 in relation to the to not eating the, the, the blood, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, mm-hmm. for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. So there's this understanding that, that even the sacrifice itself isn't on our behalf, that it's, a, that it's the gift of God to, given to us to make atonement. So the main issue in the sacrificial system is that the whole system is on the prerequisite of intentionality. 
the whole thing is set up on there's only sacrifice for unintentional sin. There is no sacrifice for intentional sin. It's just it's not there. The intentional sin, on the basis of two to three witnesses, receives due punishment or and or death, being cut off from the community and expelled and or being stoned. Right. So the whole system is based on the presupposition of. No one can go on sinning. And there's no sacrifice for deliberate sin in, in this situation. So as you read through uh, Leviticus, it's always, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and, and they do any one of the things that the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, so they... They, they did something wrong and then they realized that it was wrong and they repent of it. They offer the, the sacrifice uh, for the unintentional sin. When the sin they committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer the bull for a sin offering and bring it to the front. They shall lay their hands on the head and it will be killed before the Lord. So again, everything is before the Lord and you always have this idea of how does God reckon the situation? then he reckons the situation is right. If a man or woman living in, uh, among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, your God, in violation of his covenant, on, and contrary to my command, has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them, or to the sun, the moon, the stars, or the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, you must investigate it thoroughly. If it's true, it will be proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel. Take the man or woman who's done the evil thing in your city, city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two to three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. So you get this phrase that's repeated over and over, purge the evil from your midst, that then gets carried over in the New Testament and applied, you know, in, like in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, to deliberate sin within the community. And it's one thing to have unintentional sin or repentant sin, because this is the point of repentance, is that you intend not to do it again. That's what true repentance is. And, and if, if you're doing it and you just feel bad about it, that's not repentance. It's, it's the point at which inside you turn and you intend not to do it again. And you resolve. And that is when the sin becomes, before the Lord, unintentional. And the sacrifice means something. Reckoned before the Lord. But if it's deliberate, then you get like, Paul says, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So there's this understanding when he's quoting from the from the law that there's there's no sacrifice, there's no place in salvation for a man who intentionally sins. He's gonna be purged, 
Therefore, purge from among your own midst, and you hand him over, which we'll get to later, but you hand him over to the devil, you expel him from your community so that he'll come to terms with what's going on, and his soul will be saved on the day of the Lord. Right? So, uh, Uh, so I just put down on the on page three there if you want to read it later, but it's just a commentary out of the JPS Torah commentary. So it's a Jewish commentary on Leviticus, on the sacrificial system, just saying the same thing that, that there is no place for intentional sin within the law, and intentional sin is is dealt with by due punishment, and that the idea that you can offer a sacrifice for intentional sin is one of the main things that the prophets continually attack. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not a new issue that we're running into with this whole hyper-grace thing. It's like, no, you can't go on sinning and still be covered by the blood. It, that, that's, that doesn't, the reckoning doesn't happen before God. It, it doesn't apply to you. <laughs> so, uh, page four... Uh, the death of the Messiah is fundamentally in the New Testament interpreted as a as a sacrifice, and so this um, this is one of those um, uh, yeah. So Isaiah fifty three, if if uh, is you know Psalm two, Psalm one ten, Isaiah fifty three are the main passages that you get rehearsed over and over in the scriptures. But as far as the, the, the idea of the suffering of the Messiah before the coming glory, it's Isaiah 53 that's primarily rehearsed and referred to over and over because it's such a clear articulating out messianic passage. That, um, But the, the, the how Isaiah 53 would have been interpreted would have been interpreted along the lines of the sacrificial system because all of the language of Isaiah 53 and what happens with the servant it's the same language as the as the sacrifices. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken, smitten, uh, smit, stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Right, and so this is the language of the, the animal is 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 crushed for the iniquity of the of the worshiper. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and you lay your hands upon the animal, and the animal bears it. By his wounds we're healed, where we all like sheep have gone astray, each to his own, turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So here you get a direct reference to the lamb being led to sacrifice. Yet it is the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. In his hand, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So again, the the you 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 often you'll You'll read, you know, people, you'll read commentaries and stuff, and, and they'll present this idea that somehow, somehow the early church invented all of this interpretation 
of the death of the Messiah as an atonement, as though they just kind of came up with all of this. You, you, you understand? Like, as though it was all spinning in the mind of Paul. And, and you'll, like, you know, like, uh, like N.T. Wright wrote a book called Paul, the Founder of Christianity, right? You'll get this, this idea. I think it was N.T. Anyway, but you'll get this idea in which Paul is somehow the inventor. And, uh, and this, is, this is just completely misguided because how Paul lays it out is he says, look, Galatians 1, I didn't go up to a man to receive the revelation about what the death of the Messiah meant, okay, in atonemental terms. He says, I received it from Christ Jesus directly. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he appeared to 500, he appeared to the apostles, and then... As one abnormally born, he appeared to me. And what did he appear to do? He appeared to interpret the death of himself along these lines, that this is how God reckons the death of the Messiah. Because lots of people died, right? All these people died. Right? The prophets died, John the Baptist died, but God didn't reckon any of those guys as an atonement. But he reckons this one man. Before his own eyes, in his own economy, he reckons this guy to bear the iniquity of the sin of Adam. This isn't like, again, this is kind of like the sacrificial system where it's like, a man didn't come up with this, right? And so this is the point, is Acts 1-3, when he appears to them for 40 days and teaches on the kingdom of God, this is the content of the New Testament. When you read that phrase in Acts 1-3, you have to think that what Jesus is telling them, Jesus is the one expounding and giving understanding to them that the death of the Messiah is considered by God a sacrifice. That Jesus is the one, after his resurrection, interpreting to them what it means. And then they are preaching it, and the New Testament is basically a representation of that 40 days of teaching. And all of the language of propitiation and justification by faith and redemption and all of this, that the, the interpretation and all of this that seems so complicated traces back to that 40 days, right? Because he appeared to the apostles, gave them the revelation, then he appeared... Then, abnormally born, he appeared to Paul. And he gave to Paul the same thing that he gave to the apostles on that 40 days. And that is the book of Galatians, right? So we'll get there in a, in a minute. But Hebrews 10, you get kind of a summation of, of the, the bottom line. Like, what did the first coming mean? What did it mean? Hebrews 10 is, in my mind, like, the bottom line of what it meant, the first coming and the suffering of the Messiah before the glory. And by that, will he, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at a sacrifice, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you get an interpretation of his death as an offering akin to the daily sacrificial offering that, that was instituted at Sinai. And then you get all the references to the blood. And so whenever you hear the blood, in everybody's mind is the temple in Jerusalem tracing back to Sinai, right? This thing is, you know, like, if you read background studies on, on the temple in Jerusalem, Jerusalem wasn't a city with a temple in it. Jerusalem was a temple with a small town built around it. Like the temple comprised 25% of the land area of the city. You understand, like, it, it wasn't like, you know, it, it, it wasn't down in a riverbed in a lush valley with agriculture and stuff. It's, it's up on a rock in kind of the middle of nowhere, right? It's like Jerusalem isn't strategically positioned for prosperity. But it has a big temple on it. And that big temple is for sacrifices so that we can be reconciled to God and saved from judgment, right? This is what's going on. And so all the, all the references to blood has, brings to mind the whole sacrificial system the, uh, from the past. And again, what, what ends up happening is that you have like the blood and the sacrifice and all this has kind of just become jargon. It's just jargon in the church. It doesn't, like, it doesn't like, have grips to reality and history and future and me, human beings. You know, it's just like this kind of a bunch of ideas floating around and kind of a systematic theology out there somewhere that somebody presented in a course one time or did a preaching series on or whatever. Anyway, uh, so uh, like we looked at Hebrews 9 last night. The blood of bulls and the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. How much more than the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, and cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set free those uh, from the sins committed under the first covenant. So again, it's it's interpreted on the large picture, and the death of the Messiah is interpreted as a sacrifice to cleanse the sins in light of the eternal promises in the age to come. So again, you got to put it on the simple timeline with the two basic two ages, the day of the Lord, and eternity on the other side, and the receiving of the eternal promises. And keep moving. So the forgiveness of sins. So the the new covenant and the whole uh, as we're leading up to the cross and and the Passover meal together. This is how Jesus interprets his death is initiating the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And so this is kind of uh, you know what do you do with the new covenant because it, it gets framed fairly. You know, eschatological end time and Jeremiah 31 and other places that imply it. It's, but it's the same way you deal with Psalm 110, the same way you deal with Zechariah 9. Just because part of it is done doesn't mean it's fulfilled or that the other part is somehow happening, right? So the, the point of 
this is the new covenant, in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, right? And so the, there's one part that is singled out, and then you get it unpacked in, in Hebrews, especially chapter 8 through 10, where the point of the new covenant that makes the old obsolete and is built on better promises, the point is that the better promises are promises of the forgiveness of sins, which is what we just read. Instead of just an outward cleansing, you have an inward cleansing, and you have a superior promise for atonement that then qualifies you for the inheritance with the saints in light in the age to come and the, the everlasting covenant being set up. So, uh, common sacrificial assumptions, uh, Acts 13, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So, so that you, you, through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by in the law of Moses. So again, you have the law of Moses justifying you from outward uncleanness that, that with the temporal presence of God, you don't die as you enter in, but you have the justification inwardly of the conscience unto the day of the Lord and the inheriting of eternal life. And the, the you know, a lot of times you'll hear like in the book of Acts, there's no clear theology of atonement. You know, only that comes developed later with Paul and stuff. And it's like, no, it's assumed in a narrative, you're not going to have a whole bunch of in-depth unpacking, right? But when they say that they proclaim the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, mm -hmm. in everybody's mind, there's only one way to the forgiveness of sins, which is made explicit in Hebrews 9. It's through the shedding of blood, referencing the sacrificial system. So that it's, it's assumed in everybody's mind that this is how the forgiveness of sins happens in the animal, in the goat, in Christ Jesus, right? And so whenever there's the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, there's an assumption that whatever it is that you're finding the forgiveness of sins in, that's the means, that's the sacrifice and the shedding of blood by which you receive the forgiveness of sins, right? So the forgiveness of sins is a catchphrase for an entire theology of atonement that's being preached in, in the context. When Paul's staying up all night here and the kid falls out the window and dies, because like, Paul talks on and on and on through the night, people fall asleep. This is the stuff he's talking about. He's talking about what we'll get into in the epistles where there's a detailing of the different aspects to the death of the Messiah and having depth and breadth to it. But it's assumed. There, there's assumptions on how, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So... Okay, now we want to enter in here for a little bit on some of the different words that are used for atonement. This is usually where people tune out. They kind of like, the eyes glaze over, and they're kind of, right? Because I understand, I know what it's like to sit under teachings, you usually about, you know, you kind of listen along, and then you kind of think about this list, and I got this to do, and they're, well, we're back, and hey, oh, what, no, I missed what, and then you kind of you kind of engage, then you, then you got you like thinking about look at that spot on the wall. I don't know how I got that. <laughs> oh, you know, so and it's like this is really easy at this point to like that our guy does. Our guy does. Right, you guys are all very disciplined. I understand that. Like, I used to be in classes, people get all mad at me. Like, 
I watch people sleep on me, and I'm like, well, that's my problem. I'm holding your attention, apparently. All right, so uh, 2 Peter, Second uh, Peter, okay, 2 Peter 3, you have, you have as, as straightforward, apocalyptic, day of the Lord, cruciform, the mercy and patience of God now, right? 2 Peter 3, the day of judgment, like the flood of Noah, the heavens filled with fire to consume the ungodly, these things, right? Then he says, verse 14, So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in, the, of them, in them of these things. His letters contain some hard, some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Right? So we, we have to understand that Paul has complexity to his writings. Okay? But we have to understand that in the complexity of Paul's writings, in, in all of the language... He's saying the same thing as 2 Peter 3. Alright? So Peter, here's a testimony that Peter is saying, our dear brother Paul is saying the same thing as I just said with the apocalyptic day of the Lord bit. Right? But he says things that are hard to understand because the man had revelation and he had breadth and depth to it, to that timeline. But we have to interpret so as we enter into this, and we're not going to go deep, I'm just going to hit like one passage on each point. But I'm sure lots of passages will come to your mind, and as you're reading through the epistles, you'll get, you know, like you'll get Ephesians, like Ephesians 1, right? You'll just get like, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, accordance with the riches of God's grace he lavished on us, accordance to make known the mystery to us, the good pleasure purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, bring all things together in the heavens and on the earth under one head, Christ. He predestined us according to plan to work out everything in conformity with his purpose in order that we who are the first in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, also included in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you're marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, the praise of his glory. Right? I mean, it's just like so many words, like all coming at you. And so you understand why you get like, you take, I mean, this is just one like, you try to do like a systematic unpacking and word study of every little word and try to like put it all together and people just get lost in it. It's like, no, you have to take it and you have to say this says the same thing as 2 Peter 3. Okay? Our dear brother Paul, he writes this, he says the same things. He's just kind of hard to understand because he, he's got a lot going on inside of him. He wants to be articulate about it. You see what I'm saying? So again, as we enter in, we have all these different words. My point is not to overwhelm you with a bunch of complexity. It's to take the complexity that's in the scriptures and put it in a simple framework that you can hear it and go, 
Yeah, he's talking about the return of Jesus. And he uses past tense and present tense and future tense. He uses all these different nouns and verbs and different ways of describing it and different law court, you know, marketplace and of the cultic context. And it's like you can put it together in a, in a, on a simple timeline in relation to first and second coming. Okay, so the reconciliatory end of forgiveness. Oh, we just read this, didn't we? No, we didn't. No, that's Colossians 1. Yeah, Ephesians 1, sorry. So, uh, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So again, you get the reconciliation based on the blood, on the sacrifice, shed on the cross. Once you're alienated, your enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. So again, you get the reconciliation because man and God are at enmity with one another, but it's in light of and in anticipation of the reconciliation at the day of the Lord. That those who, who God knows and are reconciled will inherit eternal life. Those who are his enemies, he will punish. The righteous will, you know, be blessed, the wicked... Uh, condemned. So in light of the reconciliation between the holiness of God and the depravity of man by the day of the Lord, you have a threefold way presenting the death of the Messiah as a sacrifice. And each of these are based on the blood as we'll work through. So again, you have to have the foundation of the sacrificial system to describe the different ways in which the death of the Messiah, what it meant. And it corresponds to the day of the Lord as we'll see. And so the, the royal aspect is the propitiation, right? Because it's the day of wrath, the day of God's burning anger. And so the, the offering of the sacrifice was done in a way to appease the wrath of God. And, then, and part of the problem is we, we just don't use the word propitiation, right? We don't, you know, my son wants me to be propitious towards him, so he offered me a gift that he might propitiate my anger. And therefore, the gift was an offering of propitiation because he didn't clean his room, right? We don't, it's not in the street language common day to day. So, but we can't, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we can just move on from it or reinterpret it or just use a generic word like atonement because atonement is, is originally a word to, to, to uh, that's a synonym of reconciliation, to reconcile, at one minute. Tyndale used it for to translate, you know, for reconciliation. But now you have English translations that are using the word atonement to translate propitiate. And so instead of an offering of propitiation, setting forth the propitiation, he sets it, he, he offers him as a, a sacrifice of atonement, which doesn't, that's not what propitiation means. Propitiation means to appease anger, okay, which this is real central to the whole issue of the day of the Lord, and we all we all deal with this day to day. We just don't have language for it, right? We, we want our parents to be happy and pleased with us, not angry. We want our friends to not be angry at us. We want God to not be angry at us, right? And we're coping with all this going inside and all everything outside, and how do we deal with other people and their problems and sins, and and not be angry at them, how we have, you know, all this, forgive others as God has forgiven us. And so it's very real to our lives, and, and the whole issue of propitiation is cent central. And God has ordained that this is the means 
by which we appease the anger of God. And there's no other way to appease the anger of God. There's no amount of diligence or faithfulness or zeal or whatever. It does not appeal the, the, the uh, appease the anger of God. Romans 3, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So Romans 3 is difficult because you get three theological jargon words packed one on top of the other, you know. And uh, and then you get, well, let me go into perversions. Of, the, the straightforward way to interpret that is the whole world's going to be held accountable to God right before that in verse 19. And the whole world's under sin. And the whole world's fallen short of the glory of God. And this is the way that we escape the wrath to come, right? Is by faith in the sacrifice, the propitiation that was set forward. So the propitiative nature of forgiveness, then there's the justificative uh, or justification uh, uh, the kind of aspect to forgiveness and the sacrifice. Romans 5 said, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, way, in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since now, since, since, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? So again, you get the language of justification in light of the wrath of God to come. And the language of justification is legal language. Right? So you have the royal wrath anger language, and then you have the legal criminal uh, guilt condemnation language that's going on, in which you're being charged with transgressions in light of a judgment seat to come. And the way that the same word for justify is the same word for acquit, it's the absolving of guilt. And either the guilt and the crime is made right by the payment by the person who's charged or in some way else that the, 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 the guilt is made right and is that person's forgiven, right? So one way or another, the crime and transgression is resolved in the situation. So the point of that is that you can translate to justify as to acquit. It's the same word, okay? So if it's helpful for you as you're reading through all of the kind of technical terminology of Paul and every time you see justification or justify you can put in there acquittal or to acquit right just because it, it gives you that kind of the, the crimes are being uh, 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 whatever 
forgiven. Okay. So, in light of the day of wrath and the day of judgment, you have the day of recompense and the payment for sins. And so, redemption, the word redemption derives from the noun ransom, a payment price. So, if you've been redeemed, you've had the payment of debt paid in the situation. So, again, the, the death of the Messiah is understood on sacrificial terms that by the blood of the sacrifice, then the payment has been made for the damages done by the sins. So like we read in Ephesians 1, he chose us to be adopted as sons in accordance with his pleasure. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's given, freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So again, this is part of why you know, you pick up a book on atonement and you get this dizzying array of, of different ideas that are all just kind of mishmashed together and it's like you, you, I, my seminary career culminated with a class on the atonement, right? We read 3,000 pages of the history of atonement throughout, you know, this, it was just like, uh, it was a nightmare. And by the end of the class, the bottom line is the agenda of the Dean of Theology at the time, who I won't name. But his agenda is to present a kaleidoscopic view of the atonement, which there's all these different theories. If you guys are familiar, you know there's only one man who uses that. There's all these different theories, and it's just a big kaleidoscope of different metaphors and images that... that speak of some transcendent reality that's beyond grasp of humanity. At the end of the class, I remember we're going around giving testimonies in the class, and this guy who is like a youth minister, right? And he says this, and he says it in such a way as though it's a good thing. But you can see he's, he's, he's a train wreck. He's like, you know, before taking this class, I, I really, I felt like I knew what the gospel was. You know, it was simple to me. Now I realize that I don't know what the gospel is, and you can't really nail it down. And it, and it was like, brother, you're just on a sure track to a lake of fire. Like, there's no, this isn't, you don't now look down on others because they have a simple view of, of the cross, and now you have some more enlightened, transcendent view that's with many metaphors and images that are, you know, now it's like no, no, no. They're not metaphors of something or or images of something that's beyond grasp. They're the day of the Lord is like this. It's a day of wrath and judgment and recompense because God's mad. He's going to charge us with real crimes for real sins we've done. He's going to make it pay for us. If we can't pay for it, we'll pay for it with our lives. And God set forward His Son by his blood as a sacrifice, by his blood as a propitiation to appease the wrath of God, by his blood as a justification to absolve the guilt and to forgive the, the, the crime, and by his blood as a payment to pay the debt that we owe, that we can't pay. You understand? So there's complexity of language, but it's not a complexity of reality. It's a very simple reality that there is a day coming upon humanity and this day is going to have these aspects. And God sent his son the first time on behalf to bear our sins as a sacrifice to deal with these different aspects of the day of the Lord. 
You, you see what I'm saying? So again, it's, it's, he says some things that are hard to understand, but he's saying the same thing in a, in a simple, straightforward, cruciform, apocalyptic timeline. You see why this is important, that we have the, the basic timeline and the structure straightforward and up front. You start messing with that, you start overlapping the ages, you start changing the, the playing field, so to say, introducing heavenly destiny and redemptive histories about the manifestation of divine sovereignty and God taking over. You do all this, and then you throw all this other language in on top of it, and it's just like, well, I don't know what God's doing. He's kind of like extending his, you know, his scepter from Zion, which is the church, because he's sitting on the spiritual Davidic throne above, and he, he's manifesting his sovereignty through this through his vicar, the Pope, and and he's and it's and but he's also loving his enemies, but he's crushing his enemies, but he's offering propitiation, salvation, repentance. But and it's just like you you have this dizzying array of ideas that people can't make sense of in a simple, straightforward way. So what do you do? Oh, well, you have to spend 40 years studying and write a 10-volume systematic theology to make sense of it all, right? That's how you deal with the situation. No, that's not how you deal with the situation. You accept and, 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 and take hold of the apocalyptic nature of the day of the Lord. You set your hope fully there. And then you play by the rules and the arrangement that God set forward in the sacrifice. And you put your faith in that unto the day of Christ Jesus, awaiting the crown of righteousness by faith. And you walk in the Holy Spirit daily. And you believe it. And you sign up day by day. I believe it. 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 You know what I'm saying? Because it's not like it's hard enough to believe in the day of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Like, that thing's hard enough to believe in. That all of this and the corruption and the multinational corporations and all the conspiracy, because there's conspiracy, the kings of the earth conspire. And, and there are really lots of men behind closed doors that none of us know about that you can't ever figure out. It doesn't matter how much you try to track it down. They're conspiring. But the point is, is that God is having mercy on them. And this is how God has ordained it. And we set ourselves to it and say, no, there's a day that God has set up. That God's going to punish the wicked. That I'm going to give an account of my life. And I'm not going to be found in myself and my own brokenness and weakness. I'm going to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. I'm going to press forward to that day. I'm going to, I'm going to live for that day. The life I live in the body, we'll, get forward to, we'll look forward to that in a second. So it's hard to believe in that day. It's even harder to believe that God accounts you on that day according to the sacrifice. You see what I'm saying? So this thing is a challenge to faith at every level. And we'll get, well, as we work through the evangelism aspect, it's, it's a challenge on both fronts to Jew and Gentile alike. 